last night the ladies had a sweet time together in the women's tea. It's joy to think about, again, coming together in Bible studies and things like that. There are just certain aspects of the ministry that cannot be reduplicated through streaming and through online. Someone from afar can listen in, they can watch, they can glean from the teaching, but there is, in God's purposes and design, as Ephesians 4 describes, a kind of ministry that takes place as the body is together, mutually edifying one another and building one another up. And even as we had these young families this morning coming in and and dedicating themselves to raising their children, what they were saying to the congregation is, watch our lives as we minister to our little ones. Be there for us when we are reaching our wit's end and figure have no idea what to do next to shepherd our kids and encourage us along the way. And it's that mutual body edification that uh, we rejoice in the benefits that come as a result of it strengthening one another. But all these ministries push us to the study of God's Word, where in the study of God's Word we are being stretched and pressed. And I feel that right now as we come to this chapter, Romans chapter 11, the kind of final major theological theme before Paul turns and begins to work on some practical implications from chapters 12 through 16 of Romans. We come to this last major doctrinal vista where we get to see the riches of God's glory, and I'm rejoicing in this passage. But I rejoice in the midst of it as God stretches us. He stretches us as we are thinking through doctrines, stretches us and asks questions that we wouldn't necessarily ask ourselves. Or he starts to give us answers that we don't really like that particular answer, but God confronts us with what he's revealing. And I find that as it's laid out here in this marvelous chapter. So I just pray as the Lord does his work in our midst that he would continue to sanctify and grow us as we spend time together. Now, we turn our attention to Romans 11. We are in verses 1 through 10. And again, we come to these rich truths. We've been reflecting on the truths of the gospel and the work of the gospel, particularly the work of the gospel in the life of the nation of Israel. But we shouldn't assume, well, it only applies to Israel because there are principles that lay out for us here. Certainly, Paul is directing his attention to God's work among the Jews. But in the midst of this, he begins to lay out for us particular principles that are important for us. Principles that we can see at play, and I hope at least by the end of today to show you how these truths, what they were laid out, but how they also apply to us so we can walk away with a greater confidence in God's ministry and the ministry of His Word. Now, last week as I was teaching, and this is part of the dynamics of the joys of being together, is like if I say something and it isn't exactly clear, you can come up to me immediately afterwards. And don't worry, I fixed it the second hour, even though the first hour I left you wondering. In regards to verse 18 of chapter 10, when, Rome, in, when Paul says again, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And the concern here is some have wondered, are we saying that the gospel message, the message of Christ, the revelation of a knowledge of redemption in Christ has spread to all the world? 
Some commentators have said that exactly at that known time. In fact, one commentator says at that time when the apostles were preaching, the gospel had spread to everybody. That isn't what Paul is emphasizing here. We're not saying that the news of redemption in Jesus Christ has spread to all the world. What Paul has demonstrated here is that what God has revealed in general revelation is sufficient enough to hold everyone accountable. This is what he's emphasizing in this passage. Point is in all this, the problem isn't in the rebellion or isn't in the message. It isn't in God's work. The problem of man's unbelief isn't because the gospel isn't clear enough, it isn't evidenced enough, it isn't supported enough. No, the problem, as we saw at the end of verse 21 of chapter 10, the problem is in the rebellion of man's heart. So Paul lays that out. But now it leads us to the kind of next question that would come up. If the problem is in man's heart and man rebels, has God just pushed man away, pushed the rebellious away? You've rejected me, so I reject you. If Israel's turned against God and Israel has rejected God in their unbelief, in their hard-heartedness, has God returned the favor? Has he decided, I reject you as well, and moved on? Would we, and you know, this is where you and I would tend to struggle, when we go minister the gospel to somebody we love and we care for, somebody we long that they would have the same joy in Christ that we have, that they would experience the same peace with God that we experience, that they would have the same desire to worship the living God, just as you have a desire to worship the living God. And you go, you share your heart, you lay out all the evidences, you plead with them with a holy pleading, and they still stubbornly resist, maybe even mock you as you do it. Maybe even to make your life more difficult. What's the temptation in our heart? I'll just write you off. Just, uh, you've rejected me. You've rejected this message. I will reject you. That's the very question that Paul brings out here in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? In light of their rejection of the truth, this is the very question that would come up in the human heart. And this is again, back here in Romans chapter 11, we come back to those themes that Paul started in chapter 9. Themes of sovereignty. The themes in which God is moving and directing everything according to his good purposes. And we come back to that grand theme in chapter 11. We departed from that theme for a little bit from 9.30 through chapter 10, verse 21. We went to human responsibility to show that all man is culpable for their rebellion. Even though God is sovereign, even though he's accomplishing his good purposes in the face of man's rebellion and rejection, man is still culpable for his actions. Because he has rebelled against the knowledge of the truth, because he's taken God's truth and replaced it with his own, because he stubbornly resists when the truth comes to him. And though this message is powerful and able to save, man is stubbornly resisting and imposing, opposing the truth, and he is culpable for that rejection. To which then chapter 11 comes in. And the whole purpose of Romans chapter 11, as Paul lays out these Themes, he is going to demonstrate God's sovereign purposes and plans. And the rebellion of man, the rejection of man, is not going to thwart God's purposes. 
which is ultimately going to lead us to these verses, Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. Here's what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All of these themes, these ideas that Paul's laying out here, these doctrines at time that give us so much difficulty as we're trying to wrestle through the implications of them, as we're trying to understand them, as Paul is laying out these themes, he is pushing us to the point where we will sit back and worship the living God, the greatness of God. And we will recognize that God's ways are beyond us. He has demonstrated a depth of wisdom and understanding in this marvelous gospel that he has given. So that's where we're heading. Now let's just see how Paul has laying this out for us in this text. So we've been seeing the text before us has been emphasizing this, that we are saved by grace. The book of Romans has been emphasizing this theme from the beginning. Turn back to chapter 3 and just notice these places in which Paul has been emphasizing the message of redemption and emphasizing particularly the grace of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 says, We're being justified, notice, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. After establishing the universal condemnation and, and guilt of all mankind, he turns to the gospel of justification and reminds us that we are justified by his grace. Chapter 4 and verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, where the word there is as a grace, but as what is done. We don't earn our salvation as a result of works. It is a salvation of grace. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith. In order, notice, that it may be in accordance with grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Chapter 5 and verse 2. He emphasizes this. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, notice, into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We are, we have peace with God through grace that God has lavished upon us. We're saved by grace. Come down to verse 15 of chapter 5. Again, this theme comes out. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more, notice, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Through Adam, he brought condemnation. Through Christ, he brought, God, he brought to us God's grace. And that grace abounded to the many. Verse 17 
For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. God's grace lavished upon us. It is a gift of his grace. It is abundant grace given to us. Verse 20 and 21 of Romans 5, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, notice, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God is lavished upon us through the gospel of God. We live in his grace. You're saved by grace through faith. It continues on, verse 1 of chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Or we are living under grace, verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace rules our life now. We have received the grace of God and salvation. This grace rules in us. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. The emphasis now, as Paul's in laying out through this gospel, is the riches of God's abundant grace. And now one more time, this theme comes up in chapter 11. Turn over to Romans 11. And you see, one more time, in the midst of our section here, in verse 5, Paul reminds us, in the midst of Israel's rebellion, in the midst of their rejection, and their hostility towards God, there's still a work of God. And he says this in verse 5, In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant, notice, according to God's gracious choice. God is still saving. God's gracious activity is still being demonstrated. And this is consistent with his gospel purposes. To pour out his grace and his favor. To accomplish his good purposes. Even in the midst of a hostile people who's been rebelling against God, as chapter 10, verse 21 emphasizes, even when Israel's in rebellion and openly hostile, even when they are stubbornly resisting, even when they're disobedient and obstinate in their heart, even when they are hard-hearted in unbelief, the gracious activity of God is still at work. He's accomplishing his purposes He's bringing about rebellion. He's bringing the end of rebellion in Israel. He is accomplishing his purposes and demonstrating his marvelous grace and mercy. To which we would be asking, how did all of this work? And Paul lays it out for us in these ten verses here in the introduction of Romans chapter 11. Paul is driving us in this passage is this. And I think it's very important for us to see this theme because we have a tendency in our own heart to grow weary, to lose hope, to think that somehow because of rebellion of people around us, we lose hope and endurance. We must be reminded of this passage that the unbelief of man does not thwart the sovereign purposes of God. The unbelief 
And the rebellion in man's heart does not limit nor thwart God's eternal purposes. It doesn't put God in a box where he has to figure out a new plan. God isn't working on plan B right now. He isn't working on the uh, 130th new idea to try to figure out how to accomplish his good purposes. There is hope. Even in the face of rebellion, there's hope. Even when man in his own stubbornness, thinking that he's in control, accomplishing all of his purposes, that he is the master of his own domain, that he is the sovereign in his own life, even in the midst of all of that uncertainty and rebellion, Paul demonstrates in this chapter, God is accomplishing exactly what he intends to accomplish. And it doesn't thwart his purpose at all, so that you and I can have hope in the gospel, and in the power of our God, and in his good purposes, so that we don't have to lose heart. I think that is the grand, grand lesson that is laid out in this chapter. And one of the dangers that if we come to Romans chapter 11 and say, well, that's not the nation of Israel, this is actually spiritual Israel, and we change the audience to whom Paul is addressing here, one of the dangers is this, that then we lose confidence in God's trustworthiness. B, he does not fulfill his promises, but he just changes the rules because somebody rebels, then he could just change the rules on us at any moment in time. It's not as if we've been perfect in every way. We need the grace of God just as anyone else does. And if God would change the rules on Israel, he could certainly just do it for us. So is he really reliable? This passage is going to demonstrate for us, yes, he's absolutely reliable. And he's going to accomplish his good and sovereign purposes. And Israel is not going to be able to thwart it in any way. Now, just a quick theme overview of this whole chapter. I love uh, what Dr. MacArthur, going through this chapter, he broke it up into three sections, the whole chapter. The first section, from verse 1 through 10, this is the setting aside of Israel, and it's partial. We can say the partial setting aside of Israel, verses 1 through 10. And then in verses 11 through verse 24, you see the passing, the setting aside of Israel is passing. So meaning it's temporary. It's not going to be forever. It is temporary. And then the last theme from verse 25 through verse 36 is the setting aside of Israel is purposeful. So we see a partial setting aside of Israel. We see a temporal or passing setting aside of Israel. And we see a purpose in this setting Israel aside. That's the big overarching outline to get through this whole chapter. And now we get to focus our attention in these first 10 verses. The question in setting aside of Israel, the question is, has God rejected his people As Paul answers emphatically, may it never be. This is a partial hardening, a partial rejecting. And with this partial hardening, we'll see how Paul unfolds this particular case for us. And again, I, I think this is absolutely critical as we begin to understand these verses, to gather the details, because the difficult passage is coming in verse 26. You look at Romans 11 and verse 26 says this phrase, So all Israel will be saved just as it is written. 
What did we mean? All Israel will be saved. We'll save that till when we get there. But you need to see the details that are being unfolded before we get to that particular passage in the context. And this is where we begin to unfold here. In verse 1, we come to this question, has God rejected Israel? This question has been answered in different ways by different theologians. As Paul has says emphatically, may it never be. Many have still come up with answers with, yeah, he may it never be, but he kind of did. One view, as we mentioned back in Romans chapter 9, is the replacement theology view. The replacement theology says, yes, God has replaced Israel, the physical nation. He replaced the physical nation with the spiritual nation, a new people, the church. So the church is the Israel of God. The church is the replacement of Israel. We come in and we swoop in now. All the curses fell upon Israel for their rebellion, but all the promises, they fall upon us because we are God's people. We are in Christ. We are those who receive all the promises. And thus, all Israel is saved means all the church, all the believers. Well, we certainly need to see if that's what is demonstrated in this particular text. I don't believe it is at all. Just notice the details that Paul lays out here. Notice, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's first response is this. God is still at work. Because look, he's saving Jews, of which I am one. He is particularly drawing attention to himself. But notice in drawing attention to himself, what he didn't draw attention to. He didn't say, well, because I was riding on the donkey and Christ came and saved me, just like he saved the rest of the church, the whole church is the Israel of God. He didn't talk about the gospel of coming into his life and he became a spiritual Jew. No, he emphasized his physical Qualities that made him a Jewish man. Three qualities he lays out here. I'm an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Three qualities, physical, earthly traits that would be demonstrated that he was a physical Jew. These three traits he uses as the first proof That God is not, has not rejected his people. He is not done with them. Just quickly, these three traits. The first being an Israelite. Throughout the, the New Testament, the term Israelite was used to refer to Jewish men. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel. The same exact word. Israelites. Men of Israel. Listen. Acts 3, verse 12, Peter saw the crowd. He said to the people, men of Israel, Israelites, listen to me. The whole crowds that had gathered before him were physical Jews, Israelites. Acts chapter 5, and verse 35, men of Israel. God called out the specific group of people in these texts. He's identifying a physical people, Israelites. More than that, 
Paul identifies, he says, I am a descendant of Abraham. This is significant, certainly in the Jewish mind. Let's turn over to John chapter 8 and you see this. Culminates in John chapter 8. This emphasis and relationship back to Abraham. Two significant heroes that the Jews anchored their confidence in. One was Moses and the other was Abraham. Moses in the giving of the law, Abraham in the giving of the covenant and promises. And the Jews would find great pleasure, confidence, and joy in knowing of their physical heritage back to Abraham. Notice starting in verse 31 of John chapter 8. Jesus says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never yet even been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You will set us free. Now, notice in this particular text, as Jesus starts to show them their slavery and the freedom that he was offering, their response is, We are of Abraham. We're the spiritual children of God. We're the people who have the covenant promises. We're part of Abraham's covenant promises. We have a physical connection back to Abraham. Notice, jump ahead to verse 34, following, Jesus answered, Then truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Now verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Stop right there. Jesus is saying to his audience here, I'm not questioning your physical heritage. You are Abraham's descendants. Verse 37. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Continue on. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Again, he is acknowledging that they are physical descendants of Abraham. But he is also pointing out to them, you are not acting as Abraham acted. The emphasis here again, for our sake, is that the Israelites appreciated, sought to affirm their physical heritage and relationship to Abraham. Which, by the way, beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew starts in the very opening verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in Luke 3, verse 34, he is recognized in the lineage there as a son of Abraham. Both through his father's line and his mother's line, it shows his roots right back to Abraham. Turn back to Romans 11 then. 
Jews identified themselves. They took great pride in this physical heritage that they had. And Paul says there, I have that too. You had it. You rejoice in it. You rejoice you're an Israelite. I'm an Israelite. You rejoice that you're of Abraham. I'm of Abraham. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ is from Abraham. Yes, I'm a physical Jew just as you are because I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. And not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin, favored tribe of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin from his favored son. This was Paul's lineage. Different from our Lord who was from the tribe of Judah, this here... Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. First king of Israel, Saul, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. All of this to say is that Paul goes back to his physical roots and demonstrates from his physical roots that God is still saving. Again, the question is, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, because the very first proof, the apostle Paul a Jew, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin whose lineage can be traced back through Abraham, a Jew, he has been saved. So he says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's still saving. He is still accomplishing his good purposes. He's still redeeming. This is the glorious truth. When one was seeing rebellion in the heart of man, you also see that God is still saving his remnant, his chosen people. They're still being accomplished. He hasn't rejected his people entirely. Now Paul doubles down on this. So from verse 2 through verse 5, Paul doubles down on his argument to prove this case. Notice what he says. God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knees of Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God is not rejecting his people and has not rejected. He is presently saving. He is continuing to save, but he also has a bigger purpose. As we're going to see by the end of chapter 11, He hasn't rejected his people, even in the face of their rebellion, even in the face of their hostility to the gospel and the truth. Paul expands on this as verse 2 is indicating there, God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. hasn't rejected his promises at all. And he is, again, pouring out the riches of his mercy. And this is, again, significant for us when we are thinking about the rebellion of man and man's opposition, that a temptation in our own heart, because we're not immediately seeing the response in that individual of them turning to Christ that maybe is God's lost control here. Paul is actually taking our perspective back and pointing out, no, God is still working. Proof of that, Paul's salvation. 
but even more. And he draws our attention to Elijah in verses 2, 3, and 4. To Elijah's personal difficulty with Israel's rebellion. As Israel is hostile to the prophet and resisting the message, Paul draws our attention to Elijah's grief in the midst of Israel's rebellion and the heart that Elijah had. And again, this is where I think we, our hearts are tempted to paint God into a box that God appears just like us. Notice again Elijah's response, verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They are seeking my life. They've all rejected. They've all rebelled. They're a, they're a hostile people. Turn away from them, in essence. Reject them. We'll unpack this more next week. Elijah's particular struggle. But I just want to make a couple observations as we first look at this past. This text, Elijah's particular or, yeah, concern here is calling God to reject. He is calling God to turn away. Likely, here, again, Elijah's calling for God to turn away. But Paul is reminding us in verse 2, God hasn't rejected his people. Even in their obstinance, even in their rebellion and stubborn resistance, he hasn't rejected them. Likely at this moment, in verse 2, when Paul says there that God hasn't rejected his people, that he is quoting for us Psalm 94 and verse 14 there. God isn't over, isn't done with his work with Israel. Even in their present rebellion, he isn't done. He is accomplishing something. Even as there is suffering and difficulty, he isn't done. He isn't going to turn away from them and reject them because he's accomplishing something. I just want to stop right there for a second and give us a little bit of hope. Because we remember chapter 1 of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about the rebellion of man and God judging a nation by pulling back his favor and turning them over to themselves. When God judges, he pulls back, he pulls away and turns man over to his own rebellion. I don't want us to lose heart there when our temptation is to think, well then if he's poured out judgment, then there's no grace or favor to be found. There is no mercy to be found because he is turned over. No, not the case at all. Even in rebellion and even in God's judgment, he is bringing about his saving purposes and redeeming. Notice how he uses Elijah to prove that to us. Elijah pleads with God, verse 2 says, pleads with God, how come they're all rebellious? They've all left me. I'm the only one left. I'm the only true Israelite who believes, the only one who trusts you, And notice God's response in verse 4. Here's the divine response. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you don't see all that I am doing and accomplishing. 
Yeah, you see the rebellion, you see the stubbornness, you see the rejection, you see the hard-heartedness. It's even aimed at you at times. But what you don't see is that I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. 7,000 in our midst who have not rejected, have not turned away from me. Those whom I have redeemed, those whom I have brought to myself, so that while you believe that you're alone, you believe that you, it's only you who remain, you don't understand all of my purposes and what I'm accomplishing here. That I have, again, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. Just as a stop right there, when we think about our own nation and we see rebellion and we see hostility and we think the whole thing has gone to pot, can we not just go back to where it was in, you know, in the good old days? Can we not go back to the days when everything seemed to be in line, where we got to do the Pledge of Allegiance and bring out the flags and everybody rejoiced in our country that we were Christian? We see all the rebellion and hostility today. And we can step back and say, God is still saving people. He's still redeeming Even in the face of all the hostility and rebellion, God is still saving, and his purposes aren't thwarted. Back to this text. When we feel alone, when we feel like God's ways are being maligned, when we are seeing the overwhelming tidal wave of rebellion against God, when we are tempted in our heart to believe that they're rejecting and they've rejected this message so there's no hope at all, when we're seeing man turn to his idols and embrace his idols instead of the living God, when we are looking at the circumstances and we're seeing no hope, we need to understand this. Our perspective is so small. Our perspective of the human heart and what God is doing is so small. Just like Elijah in this moment, God, I'm the only one left. No, Elijah, I have 7,000. 7,000 around, just like you, that didn't bow the knee. I have mine. Maybe you could put it like this. Our puny little perspective does not limit the grand and glorious work of an infinitely perfect and sovereign God. The moment... We feel like God has no control. It's because we have no understanding of what he's accomplishing and doing. It's again, the emphasis in verses 1 through 10 here, and particularly verse 1 through 5, that we're emphasizing that even man in his rebellion, Israel in his rebellion, doesn't stop God from doing his good purposes. And the evidence of that is people are still being saved. Israelites, as Paul and others, are still being saved. We may may not see all the ways that God's sovereign hand is moving, but it doesn't mean then we have to believe that God isn't working any longer. Nor should we believe that. He doesn't owe us to come along and give us an update report. We're not like the Baptist convention saying, all right, give the roll call. Lord, how many people did you save? How many are you redeeming? We don't need God's report for us to be Believing, you don't need God to come and give an account for all of his sovereign purposes and what he's accomplishing. 
Because we have what the scriptures tell us, which is that he is accomplishing his good purposes. He is not going to forget his promises. He's going to carry them out. Even if we can't see it. That's the first look I want you to see in this text. Because Elijah couldn't see God's work. But that didn't stop God from working. As verse 4 indicates. I have 7,000 for myself. But that's not all that Elijah struggled with. Elijah also struggled with, why even love these people? Why even love them when they're so obstinate, so rebellious, so stubborn to the truth? And we'll look at that question next week. Because it is helpful to understand that even in the hard-hearted rebellion God still fulfills his promises. Which is, again, another comfort to us. Why? Because of verse 6 indicates it's by grace. If it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. We don't earn favor with God by our righteous works. We don't earn grace from him. It's actually... The opposite, as we're in rebellion, God pours out his grace and mercy. God pours out his kindness. We don't wait to get our life in order so that we can then come to God and he would receive us. It's in the midst of our stubborn rebellion that his grace and mercy is lavished upon us. That's what God is demonstrating. Even in Israel's rebellion, even in the rebellion of the of people today in their unbelief, God is demonstrating these truths that he is pouring out his grace and favor. And we'll look at Elijah next week and unpack this a little bit more. Let me just kind of wrap up a couple of ideas for us this morning. A couple of ideas that we can walk away with is this. First of all, God will fulfill his promises just as he said he would. He said he's going to Bless his people, Israel. He is, as we're going to see, going to bless his people according to his covenant promises. Second truth that we need to understand coming through this text is this. We don't need God to show us anything to validate our faith. We don't need God to come along and give us proofs to validate our faith. He is not on the judgment seat being judged by us as if he's given us enough evidence to prove his work. We need to humble ourselves in obedience to his commands to seek to do his will. We don't go out and obey his will simply because he's given us enough proof, so now we have enough confidence to go do it. No, just in submission of faith to the truth, we go out and do his will, proclaim the gospel, preach to all, minister the truth, and he accomplishes his good purposes. He doesn't need to validate anything to us, especially in light of the testimony of what he has said in his scriptures here. I think the other question, instead of saying, God, what are you doing around? The question is for us. Do you believe his word when he says, I'm doing these things? Do you believe that he is indeed carrying out these, his good purposes? And then the last truth that we can take away from this text is this. The present rebellion of Israel does not mean God is not working. Present rebellion 
of sinners does not disprove God's present redemption. So there are private, small ways, small moments, things that we don't get to see of God moving and directing. I love this idea because there are times we we can all look in our life when we finally confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. When we made that confession and profession of faith, likely in many of our lives we can look back and say, here are the number of times I rejected that message and to the point that God redeemed me. We don't know what God is doing in the midst of all the rejections, but we know this, he is still working, still accomplishing his purposes, and that man's heart and man's rebellion isn't going to stop it. And next week, we will pick up on this some more. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these truths, how they comfort our hearts, they give us wisdom and insight. They direct us to have more confidence in your word and less confidence in our own wisdom and understanding. But indeed, we learn from a text like this how, how we're driven by our own emotions and passions. We're driven by our own fears and unbelief. But we're thankful for your scriptures that not only draw our attention to these accounts, but then give us insight so as to direct and guard our thinking. So that when we are tempted to think of ourselves and our assessment as just, when we turn and view your assessment alone as insightful and clear. And when we are filled with unbelief because we see the unbelief in the hearts of others, may we not rest in in our confidence in the response of men, but may we rest our confidence in you and your testimonies and your dealings in our life. And indeed, your hand is evidently on display in so many around us as we see the grace of God on display in the lives of sinners. As you are transforming people and drawing them to yourself and conforming them into the image of your Son, we see the power of your good hand on display. Certainly, we rejoice in it. When we come to church and we We worship together corporately. We get to experience your good hand moving in our midst. And so, Father, help us to turn our attention to your glorious truth, to meditate in the riches of it, to believe it, and that our eyes may be opened that we would see your handiwork all around us. Thank you for your ministry. And most of all, we're thankful that you are good and sovereign God, for our confidence is in you, not in ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen.